This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Are you guys excited about studying God's Word together today? Yeah. I turn to Acts chapter 9. <clears throat> in Acts chapter 9, we have accounted for us probably the most famous conversion in all of Christian history. And it's the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul, and honestly would become the world's most famous missionary, and especially of the New Testament era. Now, if you've, if you've been tracking through with us, and along with us this fall, as we've been studying the, uh, the book of Acts, what we have sought to do through this study is to paint for you a picture of upside-down church, of how the first century practices of the early church are really upside-down to, number one, just human intellect and human reason. There are just things that God does that just do not seem normal to us as human beings. But then also from a 21st century lens, looking back on the first century lens, there are practices of the early church and works of God that just, they seem counterintuitive. And they just don't seem like this is the way, if I was going to write the story or write the script, that this is what would happen. And such is most definitely the case when we get to Acts chapter 9. If you were going to think for a moment about who would make the best missionary, if you would think about who would be uh, in the annals of, of the greatest among missionaries and who would be the best candidates, who would come to mind? Maybe someone who looks a little like Mother Teresa? Or, or, or perhaps someone from the Vatican who wears a special robe or, or carries a, a, a particular staff? Or, or, or maybe it's that, that quiet, meek kid who has simply grown up in the youth group and has always done what was the right thing to do and has always been the gracious, gentle kid. And then he graduates from high school and comes back to tell you the story about how God had transformed his life through a campus ministry on campus and now he wants to leverage his life overseas for the gospel. Those are probably the types of candidates we think about if we were going to say that's the greatest missionary. Those are the people who would make the best missionary. But before we actually get to chapter 9, let me read a couple of verses in chapter 8. Because before we got to the section uh, where Philip is sent out and, and shares with the Ethiopian eunuch whom you guys studied about last week, here's this little aside that Luke gives us about this guy named Saul. And Saul was an early leader in, in the Jewish faith. And Saul was a Pharisee of Pharisee. That's the way he describes himself. This guy was a religious leader of religious leaders. He was a rule keeper of rule keepers. He was a commandment follower of commandment followers. But he was also a great persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 8, at the very beginning of Acts 8, those first few verses, this is what Luke says about Saul. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul, look at this, Saul was ravaging the church 
And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, if you're simply going to study Saul, the way in which you could do this here is you could actually block out verses 4 through 40 in chapter 8. And what we could do is we could go from verse 4 of chapter 8 and go directly to verse 1 of chapter 9. And so he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Pick up with me now in verse 1 of chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, by the way, the way was an early characterization of the church of Jesus Christ. And a lot of scholars believe that what, what the early church was doing is they were playing off of Jesus' own words from John chapter 14 when he says that I am the way, the life, and the truth. And so they were called the way. And so he's looking for anybody belonging to the early church, men or women. He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is Saul. This is the type of guy he was. This is the way he was programmed in his mind. And I don't want you to miss this because not only was he doing this, he was doing this in the name of God. He truly believed that what he was doing was devout. He truly believed that what he was doing, he believed that he was doing God a favor by stamping out and quietening these early believers who were giving allegiance to this man named Jesus Christ. And so in his mind, in his pharisaical mind, these early believers were blaspheming the name of God because they were giving worship, honor, and glory to another man other than God himself. This is Saul. Surely, this is someone whom God would not have much time for. And, and surely, the gospel is able to save anybody except a guy like that. Because you see, missionaries look like Mother Teresa. Missionaries look like the good church kid that graduated and goes, he goes to the next step. Missionaries don't look like Osama bin Laden. Missionaries don't look like terrorists. Saul is on his way to terrorize and kill more Christians. And look what happens in verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. I want to show us a couple of things from this conversion story of Saul. I want to lay a couple of foundations for us just simply from his conversion. And it's good news this morning. The first one is this. No one, count it, no one is beyond the grace of God. And this is good news for us in the room today. If you have heard the gospel, and if you have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, aren't you thankful this morning that you were not beyond the grace and the mercy of God? 
But then I want you to think about those in your sphere. I want you to think about that guy in your, in your physics class tomorrow. I want you to think about that girl on campus who is simply just antagonistic towards the things of the faith. I want you to think about that family member who just constantly ridicules you because you follow Jesus. I want you to think about the terrorist in Saudi Arabia today who is right now in his home conniving and plotting where he will hit next. I want you to think about the person or persons that you look at and you think surely there cannot be enough grace or mercy for that person. What Saul teaches us in the conversion of his heart here in this passage is that nobody, no one is beyond the grace of God. And think about how radical this transformation was, how radical this conversion was, because Paul was not a spiritual, spiritual seeker going to a really cool service with fog lights and, and special effects, right? Like he wasn't going to listen to, to the guy who has a million hits on YouTube trying to figure out who Jesus actually was. No, this guy was no spiritual seeker at all about Jesus or the gospel. He had already made up in his mind that Jesus is not who he says he is and that he and his followers need to just be eradicated from the earth. He had already made that decision. I love what Tony Morita points out here about the conversion of Paul. He says the good news of the gospel is that God pursues sinners. Saul wasn't on a quest to find salvation. He was on a quest to persecute Christians. Yet God arrested Saul by his sovereign grace. This is good news for us this morning. That guy, that girl... That family member who right now you're looking at and you're saying they are the furthest they ever could be from the gospel of Jesus. There's great mercy with God, but I'm not sure that there's enough to actually reach him or her. I want you to think about the reality. That guy in your suite today who's antagonizing you for your faith, he could be leading a Bible study down the hall this time next year. That's what Saul is teaching us here. That's what Jesus teaches us through his conversion. But then I want you to see a second foundation this morning from Paul's conversion. It's not only that no one is beyond the grace of God, but also this. Everyone saved by the gospel has a story to tell. Everyone saved by the gospel has a story to tell. Now here's where I want to put the book of Acts in better context, and put some things together for you. Now, in Acts 9, we see the narrative. We see the account. We see the moment when Saul repented of sin, placed faith in Jesus, when Jesus radically encountered him on the way to Damascus, changed his life, commissioned him to now be a mouthpiece for him just a a few moments after he was on his way to kill some of his followers. And then a few chapters later in Acts 22, Paul's going to be before a mob where he's being beaten and being sent out, driven out of the town. And then I want you to fast forward again over to Acts 26 because in Acts 22, he's going to tell his testimony of how Jesus saved him radically on the Damascus road to that mob. But then what's going to happen between then and Acts 26 is that Paul would be arrested on false charges when he was in Jerusalem. And then there would be a plot to kill him. And so the authorities would then move him to Caesarea. 
And after a two-year stint in prison, the Roman governor Festus brought Paul before King Agrippa so that they might hear what Paul had to say for himself. And what I love here is when you take Acts 9 and Acts 26 and you marry them together, you get a fuller picture of the transformation of Paul's life. Because when you read the conversion story of Paul, if you're like me and you want more details, you're sitting there going, man, I wish there was more. I wish there was more that I could get inside of his mind and his heart. What was he holding dear? What was he thinking? Um, What was he putting his trust and faith in? What were more specifics of how Jesus saved him? What was his life like after he was transformed? Like, I wish there was more there, right? Well, Acts 26 is going to give us that. Because when Paul is before King Agrippa, he's going to tell his testimony with much more detail. And when Paul gives his testimony of how Jesus radically transformed his life, what I want you to see today, and what I want myself to see today, is how the gospel of Jesus Christ radically transforms the lives of the, of the lost and makes them found. And takes the darkened and makes them walk in light. And how we be- go from being estranged from God and hostile to the things of God to being very much the adopted sons and daughters of God and, and very much lovers of the things of God. Paul's going to give us that picture in Acts 26. And so here's what I want to do for the remainder of our time today. Knowing that no one is beyond the mercy of God, the grace of God, including you and me. But then when the gospel of Jesus Christ changes us, regardless of whether we had a really rough past like the Apostle Paul had, or whether for all intents and purposes, we looked pretty good outside, externally, spiritually speaking, regardless of from what angle you're coming, what I want you to know today is that if the gospel has changed you, you have a story to tell. You have a story to tell to your friends. You have a story to tell to your coworkers. You have a story to tell to your family and friends. And so what we're going to see this morning now as we walk through Paul's defense and through Paul's testimony is I want you to see the basics of telling others how Jesus changed your life. Okay? Here's where we start. Explain what your life was like before following Jesus. Explain what your life was like before following Jesus. We got, we got to start with the bad news so that we can get to the good news. We, we got to start with a, a contrast. And so if we're going to show how Jesus has changed our lives, we have to have something to juxtapose it against, to contrast it with. And Paul does this as he starts his defense, beginning in verse 1. This is what Paul says to the king. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, King Agrippa looks to Paul and says, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And this is what Paul said to the king. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Paul begins explaining what his life was like before following Jesus by sharing some personal details of his life. And so that's where I would take you first, is share some personal details. And once you see this in a couple of ways here with what Paul does. First, since we are persons, 
sharing with actual people, let's be personal. Did you see how he did this? He waited for permission to speak. Uh, Paul didn't just jump into the king's court with guns ablazing, just ready to spout off about how God is true and Jesus is the, the one true gospel and that they're all wrong. He waited for permission to speak and he extended his hand, which was a very personal, respectful gesture on his part. And then he addressed King Agrippa with respect. I mean, and don't you know that if, if you were imprisoned, and it was the mayor of Lowell or the governor of Massachusetts or the president of the United States who was personally responsible for your imprisonment, it would be very difficult to respect that individual, wouldn't it? I mean, just the personal aspect of it. But you see grace. You see a personal disposition, a very personal approach here. And this is very instructive for you and for me when we're sharing our stories of how God has transformed our lives is are we very personal? Are we very respectful as we engage with and dialogue with others about our faith? But then I also want you to notice how Paul shares some personal details of his life. In verse 4, he talks about his manner of life from his youth, spent from the beginning among his own nation in Jerusalem, and how it was known by all the Jews. It's very much noted in history that King Agrippa was a, a, came from a Jewish background himself. And so what Paul is doing is here is trying to build inroads to his heart. Like, look, I'm you. I'm one of you. We grew up in the same way. We have a lot of the same customs. And so here, that's a very good teaching point for you and for me and how we can share some personal details of our lives. One of the places I like to go when I share about how God has transformed my life is I like starting with the fact that I grew up a product of a broken home. That my mom and dad, I never knew them together because they were divorced when I was two years old. And because of that separation, there was a lot of family drama. And that definitely colored my view of parents. It, it colored my view of fathers. It, it colored my view of what intimacy was and what, and, and what family was. And it'd be very difficult for me to talk about my spiritual journey without talking about those very personal details about my life. And so I want to encourage you that when you're talking about what your life was like before following Jesus, be like Paul and share some personal details, but also share some spiritual details. He goes on in verse 5 after he talks about being known by all the Jews. He says, they have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. This would have been very important for these people. But because it would have been very tempting to, to look at a lot of this ragtag bunch of followers of Jesus who had <clears throat> come out of the Jewish tradition and attached themselves to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And because so many of them were, were very common people, many of them uneducated people, it would have been very easy for the elite and the hierarchy of the day to just simply dismiss Christianity because it wasn't intellectually sound. And because it wasn't intellectually sound, it wasn't spiritually sound. And so what Paul does here is he says, look, not only was I spiritually a Jew, 
And not only did I put my hope in the Jewish system of commandments and laws and sacrifices, you know me. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I knew the commandments backwards and forwards. I studied at the feet of Gamaliel, we'll learn in another passage about Paul, who was one of the most intellectual of intellectuals of his day. Paul is saying, look, I'm a smart dude. And religiously, spiritually, I was a devout Jew. I was a very spiritual person. But I was wrong. I was wrong about ultimate matters of life and death. I was wrong about God. The very God I said I worshipped. The very God I was defending by killing these people of the way. He goes on in verse 6 and he says, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O king. What is the hope? The hope is that all of the, New, the Old Testament scriptures were pointing towards the arrival of the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. And what he's basically saying is respectfully, king, Respectfully, you Pharisees, respectfully, you Jewish leaders, you've missed it. You missed him. I missed him. I not only discounted him, but I persecuted him and his followers. And verse 8 makes it very clear he's talking about the true gospel of Jesus Christ because he says, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? This was a sticking point. This was a major sticking point for many of the religious elite in Paul's day. Is that the resurrection is a myth. It's impossible. Have you ever met people who think that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an impossibility? It's incredulous to believe something like that. It's ludicrous to believe that. You, you would have to be a, a bumpkin from the hills in order to believe such fairy tales and fantasies. Well, there were people in the first century, very educated, very influential people who believe that same thing. And Paul is pleading with them, saying, I was the same guy. I also seriously doubted. I was an unbeliever. I got it wrong. You see, it's very important when you're sharing with someone how Jesus has transformed your life by the power of the gospel that you explain what you were putting your hope in spiritually. You may say, Chris, well, I wasn't the guy that was like Paul. Like, I wasn't antagonistic towards the faith. I, I wasn't an atheist, and, and I wasn't a guy who just lived it up and had this really great testimony uh, of how I lived like Hades before I came to Jesus. Well, you can explain, though, how you thought that spirituality was this or you could say that man my hope was in what i was doing my hope was in my intellect my hope was in what my parents were taking me to experience week in or week out or you might say i always thought fill in the blank but then i met jesus and i learned that the gospel was very different than what i thought it was so it could also be satisfaction I used to find satisfaction in relationships. I used to try satisfaction in sex or in money or in fame. But all those things failed me. And I learned that true satisfaction is in Jesus Christ. Share personal details of your background. Share some spiritual details of your background. 
and ultimately explaining what your life was like before you met Jesus, before you followed Jesus. But then secondly, one of the things that Paul does here is he explains what his life was like coming to Jesus. And so I would implore you to do that same thing. Explain what your life was like coming to Jesus. After in verses 9 through 11, he talks about the way in which he punished Christians and hurt Christians because he thought he was doing it in the name of God. He says in verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. He's basically saying, look, not only was I doing this against Jesus, and not only was I doing this against Christians. I was on my way to do it again. I was on my way to do it even more. And so when you explain what your life was like coming to Jesus, number one, share the circumstances. What were the circumstances where you heard the gospel? What were the circumstances where you were around the church, maybe for the first time, Or perhaps you started understanding things for the first time in your spiritual journey. Or you started getting some misconceptions corrected and started truly understanding what the gospel was. Now true, few of us have what we might call a Damascus Road experience. I'm not sure that any of us in this room were walking down University Avenue and, and Jesus Christ in the middle of the night just stopped you on the bridge and blinded you for three days where you couldn't see nor eat for three days, and then personally commissioned you to go into North Campus and South Campus and East Campus and into Pawtucketville and the Highlands in order to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. But every one of us has circumstances where we heard the gospel and started understanding it. For some of us, it could have been something benign. Like, you grew up in a very great Christian household, and you had very faithful mom and dad who shared with you the gospel and read the Bible with you day in and day out, taught you how to pray. But maybe for 14 years or 18 years, it was just disconnected in your life, and you didn't really understand what this whole Jesus-God thing was about. But then there were circumstances where God started taking the blinders off. And it started becoming real to you. Maybe you met a friend. Maybe you got connected with a group. And things just started becoming clear. Others of us, it was a crisis. It was a really treasured loved one who died in your life. And because they had passed away, it started making you start asking questions about eternity and spiritual matters. It could have been calamity in your life. It could have been a family tragedy. It could have been a financial collapse. It could have been substance abuse. It could have been homelessness. It could have been a life transfer, a transfer uh, where you move from one location to another. It could have been going to school. Regardless of what it is, there were circumstances where you began being introduced to the gospel and to his people for the first time. 
Paul shows us that it's important to show those circumstances and to tell about those circumstances. Because although every single person is not going to identify with every aspect of your spiritual journey, when you explain the circumstances of your coming around to Jesus and his meeting you on your metaphorical Damascus road, you're making inroads with them so that they can start seeing where Jesus might meet them on theirs. So share the circumstances of what your life was like coming to Jesus, but also share the gospel. Share the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is one of those places where we don't always do a very good job when we're sharing our stories. When we're sharing our testimonies of how Jesus saved us. Oftentimes when we share our stories, we really camp out on our life before or we really focus in on what our circumstances were and we talk about our friends who led us to the gospel or we talk about the circumstances of our lives, but we we don't do a good job of explaining, here's what I believed. We don't do a good job of sharing the actual gospel that changed my life, oftentimes we share our testimonies, we share our stories, and, and we convince ourselves almost that it's our stories that have the power to save. But it's not our stories that have the power to save. The Bible says in Romans chapter 116, the same Paul wrote this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So what's the power of salvation? It's the gospel. The gospel message is what's so powerful. This is why, this is why, friends, you might be one of the least eloquent people in your friend circle. You may not be able to articulate all the finest points of theology. And you might even bumble a lot as you go along the way, pointing people to scripture after scripture And you might see two, three, five friends this year come to faith in Jesus Christ. But then there can be this very intellectual giant who can just articulate all the matters of epistemology and ecclesiologies and eschatology and a lot of other ologies. And it just falls on deaf and ears. Why? Because it's the power of the gospel that transforms lives. It's not the eloquence of our words It's not the intellects of our mind. It's not the sharpness of our abilities to reason and persuade. It's the gospel. And Paul points us towards that. As he walks us through these next few verses, you see these gospel principles. In verse 15, he says that he responded, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. See, it's not Paul, it's Jesus. And Jesus says, Rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. In me, if you go on down to verse 20, when he talks about what his life was like afterwards, I'm giving you a little bit of a a foreshadow here. He says that I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. What do you hear here? You hear faith 
you hear repentance. You hear forgiveness for sins. Paul makes sure that in explaining how he became a Christian, what his life was like coming to Jesus, that he shared the circumstances, but he also shared the gospel. And I want to challenge you as you witness to others and as you tell about the transformation that God has done in your life, as I tell about the transformation that God has done in my life, yes, tell the circumstances, but also share the gospel. So we've seen that Paul lays out for us to explain what life was like before following Jesus. He shares the events and and the circumstances and the gospel leading us to Jesus. Then look what he does. He talks about what his life was like after following Jesus. And so now explain what your life has been like since following Jesus. Paul communicates what happens in a life that has been transformed by the gospel. That the gospel of Jesus is not just an ideology that I believe. It's not simply a religion that I hold to. It's not simply a lot of practices that I follow or an event or a service that I come into once or twice a week. But it's a life transformation. A transformation of the entire person. And so you get a glimpse of that as he continues. And so after saying that... uh, what Jesus Christ commissioned him to, look at what he says in verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient. Boy, there's, there's a first clue of what it's like after following Jesus. Is that we should be able to explain that since following Jesus, I now live in obedience to him. That what he commands me to do, I do. What the Bible instructs me to say, I say. What it tells me to avoid, I avoid. And so obedience to Jesus characterizes the life of the Christ follower. And he says that he was not obedient, but then, disobedient. But then he also says that life following Jesus is not always easy. It's not always easy. Now, you wouldn't know this from a lot of contemporary ideas about being a Christian. If you go to YouTube or tune in to some TV preachers today, you would get the idea that if you turn your life over to Jesus and you become a Christian, everybody gets a BMW, everybody gets a five-bedroom house, nobody gets sick, and everyone gets health care with no pre-existing conditions, right? Because everything is just great. Blessing, blessing, blessing when you follow Jesus. And a lot of times that blessing translates as material, concrete things in our lives. But that's not the picture of following Jesus that Paul paints. As a matter of fact, if we're going to be really honest today, the picture that Paul paints is not very good persuasive uh, argument for following Jesus. So after he says that he went to Jerusalem and the Gentiles commanding them to repent and to believe in Jesus, he goes on to say, for this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Life was going great as a... As a Jewish Pharisee, I was on top of the spiritual food chain, metaphorically speaking, right? I turned my life to Jesus, and then those same Jews tried to kill me. Verse 22, to this day, in response to that, I've had the help that comes from God. 
So I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. If you go back to Acts chapter 9, which I'm not going to do because of time this morning, you will see even more clearly. For, for Paul, he was arrested multiple times. He was beaten because of it. He was imprisoned. He was brought before the authorities numerous times. In Philippians, he tells us that he knew how to be in, in plenty, but he also knew how to be in great need. Paul was hungry. Paul had few material possessions after following Jesus along the way. But what this paragraph sums up, along with others in the New Testament, after following Jesus, Paul said, I wasn't disobedient. I obeyed what I was told. I was arrested. I was beaten. But God always helped. God has always been with me. He has never left me. He has never forsaken me. And His grace is sufficient for me. And so I continue to boldly preach. I continue to boldly minister in light of these struggles because His grace is greater. His comfort is more intimate than what I may experience here on planet Earth. And friends, we get to share these same things. So sure, few of us are beaten for our faith here in America and few of us are imprisoned for our faith here in America and we experience a lot of security, a lot of safety, a lot of comfort and we have wealth and possessions that much of the world do not have. However, at the same time, we still suffer. We, we still suffer through depression. We still go through economic calamities we still go through real doubts in our faith. We are still antagonized because of our faith. And so the story we tell is we tell the story of, yes, Jesus has transformed my life. And my life is not always great. And my life is not always easy because I follow Jesus. But here's what I've always found, that he is faithful and he is true. He is providential and he has never lacked, left me lacking. And I know the hope I look forward to through his grace and his promises. So explain what your life was like before following Jesus Explain what your life was like coming to Jesus. And now explain what your life has been like since following Jesus. And then I want to leave you with one last truth here before we close. <clears throat> Paul gives us this, uh, this hope, really. This is a hope. Expect God to work regardless of human response. And you might be here today and you say, Chris, I've tried sharing how Jesus has transformed my life. I have tried sharing the gospel very personally and very respectfully to other people. And it falls on deafened ears. I get it. This area of North America is one of the, if not the least churched areas in all of North America. Most areas of our, uh, surround, in our geographical epicenter here is anywhere between 90 and 95% unchurched. Do you recognize, brothers and sisters, that we are sending missionaries through our International Mission Board to countries that have higher concentrations of gospel-believing Christians than here in New England? I get it. There is hostility. There is skepticism. There is antagonism when you share this gospel and you share your story. 
But look at the example Paul gives us here because he shares this. He's bold here. He's gracious here. But in verse 24, as he was saying these things in his defense, remember, Paul is the greatest missionary the New Testament ever knew. Look at the response to him. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. And then look how he appeals in verse 26. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, (laughs) in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Friends, if the greatest missionary the New Testament ever knew got responses like this and, 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 and the crowds did not just simply fall on their face before God in repentance and faith, why should we expect that the crowds would do differently to you or to me? The example that Paul gives us here is one of faithful proclamation, one of faithful sharing and expecting God to work regardless of how human beings respond to us. We're always going to get a myriad of responses. Some of them are going to be favorable, and we're going to see some of those in the coming weeks as we make our way through the book of Acts. Sometimes they're going to, the crowds are going to respond well. Sometimes our family is going to respond well. Sometimes our roommates say, yeah, I will read the gospel of John with you. I'm interested in this. But most often, people are going to question your sanity. People are going to label you a bigot. People are going to call you names. They're going to question you. And it comes with the Christian territory. And so be encouraged with that. You're not alone. This has been the case for 2,000 years. But God is working behind the scenes in ways that you can't see, I can't see. And our commission is to be faithful to share, to be faithful to proclaim. So expect God to work regardless of human response. So when we started this morning, we saw that God saved probably the most unlikely object. A terrorist. A first century religious extremist. Killing Jesus followers in the name of God. And and he shows us here that no one is beyond the grace of God. But that whenever God's grace comes upon a man, upon a woman, and saves us from our sin, no matter how checkered our background is, how colorful our testimony is, if you've been transformed by the blood of Jesus, everyone saved by the gospel has a story to tell. So with that being said, I want to ask you two questions in response this morning. And the first question is this. Will you tell the world How Jesus saved you. Will you tell the world how Jesus saved you? Paul did that all throughout the book of Acts. He did it in front of the mobs. He did it in front of his captors. He did it in front of the king, in front of the governor, and in front of the common man. 
He was constantly telling others how Jesus miraculously, radically transformed his life. And so there is a telling, there's a telling component of our lives. We are to tell others what God has done in us. We are to tell others the gospel of Jesus. And so my question to you is just simply this. Will you do that? Will you do that? It might even start this week with telling a trusted friend. May I share with you something that is the most important thing in my life? May I share something just crazy that happened to me? It's really, it it, it doesn't make sense, but I want to tell it to you. Can I tell it to you? Like, dude, that's awkward. Yeah, well, most people are awkward anyway. So just be awkward for Jesus in the most relatable way possible. So will you tell the world how he saved you? But then secondly, will you show the world how he changed you? Will you show the world how he changed you? You see, there's a telling component with our mouths, but then there's a showing component with the way in which we live our lives. And see, Paul had this. I want to show you one last thing in the scriptures before we end this morning. The part about chapter 9 we didn't read today is there's this guy named Ananias. Now, this is the different Ananias. You know, remember, we, had, we looked at one Ananias a couple of weeks ago who did some really shady things with money and God killed him on the spot, right? We, we looked at that. That's not the same Ananias here. There's a different dude named Ananias. And, and God actually uh, told him to actually go and find this dude named Saul. And, and here's what I want you to do with him. I basically want you to incorporate him into the family of God and with the brothers and sisters. And in verse 13, Ananias answered back to God. Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Paul had a reputation. And Ananias is like going, God, this guy's a terrorist. What if he has an improvised explosive device in his vest? What if he shoots me? What if he cuts me? And God commissions him, and Ananias is obedient. And the very first thing that Ananias does when he goes and sees Paul is he says, brother. And then through the book of Acts, you see on full display the change that took place in Paul's life. And we get this simple truth this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus, if he's truly saved your soul, if he's truly transformed your heart, he's also going to transform your life. Many of you have heard me say this before. I think it's good to say it again in context of what we read today. If you have a faith in Jesus Christ that hasn't changed your life and your life looks no different, then you probably have a faith in Jesus Christ that hasn't saved your soul. Because that faith that saves your soul will also change and transform your life. So what about it today? Are you persuaded by the radical transformation that took place in this man's life? And what God used him to do afterwards? Are you here today and and you're kind of checking out the things of God? Checking out the scriptures? Might today be the day that you would repent? You would receive forgiveness from Jesus And you would be born again because of the faith that you place in him. Christian, would today be the day that you say, I want to be like Paul. I'm going to tell. 
and I'm going to show. I'm going to show and tell as I leave this place today. That's our commission. And so we be like Paul and not be disobedient, but be obedient to the call that he's given us. Father, thank you for your scriptures today. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for instructing us. Thank you for loving us enough to give us examples and faithfully preserving it and writing it down so we can know it today. Father, today I pray first and foremost that the gospel of Jesus Christ would become real for the first time for someone in this room. I pray that you would connect the spiritual dots of their heart, that you would speak life into a deadened heart, and that you would birth faith and repentance in their life. And I pray that you would give them the courage and the boldness to take a friend by the hand and tell them of what you've done in their life. Lord, for most of us in this room who follow Jesus, I pray that you would just start inside of us, spark in us today a new passion. Father, give us a passion, give us a boldness to go and tell others how Jesus has transformed our lives. And Lord, I pray that where our lives don't match our words, Lord, would we repent of that sin, rid ourselves of that, and more faithfully walk with Jesus and show the world what we're telling the world with our lips. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.